Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. If you're a pre-seed startup in the Bay Area and you're trying to ship something to your first few customers and you ship with 40-something languages, then you've, you've made a mistake. But it's not necessarily true that a large company has made that mistake. For larger companies with more total requirements, I think the big question is, can you construct environments where you can experiment without all of these requirements? Hello and welcome to the Engineering Leadership Podcast brought to you by ELC, the engineering leadership community. I'm Jerry Lee founder of ELC. And I'm Patrick Gallagher, and we're your hosts. Our show shares the most critical perspectives, habits, and examples of great software engineering leaders to help evolve leadership in the tech industry. In this episode, we discuss rapid prototyping and how engineering leaders can develop better product instincts with David Crawshaw, CTO and co-founder of Tailscale. In this conversation with David, we also cover some of the different paradigm shifts about product building how to shift your engineering organization's culture toward accelerated iteration, navigating the tension between speed versus quality, and how to work effectively with design and product, plus what to do if you are completely new and your organization is completely new to rapid prototyping. Let me introduce you to David. David Crawshaw is co-founder and CTO of Tailscale. Previously, he was a staff engineer at Google, where he specialized in petabyte-scale logs processing. He implemented TCP IP networking for Fuchsia, as well as ported the Go language platform to iOS and Android. Enjoy our conversation with David Crawshaw. Welcome, David. Thanks for joining us on the show. How are you doing today? What's going on? Thanks for having me. I'm doing really well. It's a rainy, cozy day in the Bay Area. But yeah, I'm doing great. Well, I'm glad we get to channel some of that, that cozy energy into the conversation. One of the core things that we want to dive into is this idea of rapid prototyping. And I know you told me it goes by many names and it can look differently in different places. So I think first off, would just love to dive into why this topic is important to you. But more importantly, like let's dive into your story with Tailscale and how rapid prototyping and some of the fundamentals there have become so critical to Tailscale, its architecture and the early design choices that you made. So bring us into your world and, and how this topic has become so important to you. Yeah, uh, it very much is tied to you know, how I got into the world I'm in. So before Tailscale, I was a software engineer at Google, had been for seven or eight years. And my co-founder, Avery, was also at Google. That's where I met him. We never actually worked on the same team, but we spent a lot of lunches together discussing all the things people build and the surprising ways they do it. We've both been programming for quite a while, and so we remember solving some of the problems people are solving on computers with a few zeros less of megahertz and RAM and all the other things. Uh, so we're always a bit surprised by the sort of architectural decisions and the way things are done. And I sort of fell into Google. I wasn't expecting a career in big tech. It happened almost accidentally, but I very much enjoyed it for several years. I, I learned a lot. I, I worked on a lot of really fascinating things. I really absorbed huge amounts of information and met some really amazing people. And I think very fondly on those days. I also, in the process, learned the way software is developed at large companies. And 
There's a, there's a, there are several processes people use, but there's a lot of similarities across all of them. One of the big similarities is that you think in quarters, you have some sort of OKR system or some other system for talking about what we're going to get done this quarter, which is three months of the year, which is not a unit I had any experience with before working at a big company. And eventually I left, and I left not actually to start a startup, but because I had a kid and I was going to go be a stay-at-home dad for a while, which... Uh, was challenging in other ways. And in the process, in my spare time, did some programming, tried to remember how to program outside of Google, and spent quite a lot of time unlearning a lot of the things I had learned at Google. I stopped thinking in quarters because it's not a very useful unit of measure for small projects you're taking on yourself. And in fact, it's an actively harmful measure. And then Avery also left Google and we ended up chatting. And then Avery's old friend, David Carney, from his last startup, we got together and we said we should start a startup. We got to it. We started exploring the idea space. We went in knowing the sorts of problems we want to solve. We wanted to find overly complex systems that consuming too much of people's time and build them simpler solutions. And so we started looking for people who had specific problems that we could build solutions to. That process of talking to people and looking for solutions involves, well, what would a solution look like? Let's hack something up. The first time we encountered someone who had a problem that needed something that looks like what Tailscale is today was our very first customer. And their problem was that they had a lot of legacy software that needed two-factor support on it. And the only infrastructure we could find to get them two-factor support was virtual desktop systems, which no one was very excited about using and not a lot of fun to experience every day. And in the process, we were saying, well, it's just too bad. We can't put two-factor on access to some sort of virtual IP address and just periodically require you to two-factor in to stay on the virtual IP. And we went looking at VPNs of the day because we had some experience with them and none of them made that practical. At one point, we were like, well, surely we can do this. How hard could it be? And we got a prototype working in basically a long weekend. It was less about thinking about three months for how long a project should take and more about thinking about three days. That was enough of a demo running on a Linux machine hiding in the closet of my Manhattan apartment for our first customer to say, oh yeah, we do want something like that. That's right. And so we immediately threw that away because it was awful. It was truly, <laughs> truly awful. But you know, the, the demo was there. We made a little video of it and showed some people and like connected to it. And it was very much a the worst web server you could imagine that configured a WireGuard config file not very well. It didn't do any of the interesting things Tailscale did, but it did use WireGuard, which was a, a thing we thought of, and it was fundamentally about connecting devices using it. And so some of the product was there in those first three days. It wasn't the first thing we tried hacking up, but uh, it was uh, uh, it was the compelling one. And then we set about building a prototype the customer could use. And the very first prototype that I think they connected some accounts to to just play around with, not to actually use in production, took about three weeks from there. And again, it was very much let's build the absolute minimal thing that'll work. In the process of doing that, we accidentally discovered the product. I'm not sure if it was in that three weeks or it was in some time after that, but it was somewhere in there of trying to build a traditional VPN product with concentrated units that collect all of the nodes from a, an office together and then connect to another concentrated, very, very old-fashioned architecture. It became so tricky getting the architecture right. Uh, we said, well, what if we just throw away a lot of that traditional architecture and make everything connect directly like a mesh network? Obviously, mesh networks don't work. Everyone knows this. And so we can't use this as the end design, but it will get us to the next step. And hey, maybe we can push mesh networks a little further than we think we can. We'll keep trying uh, and it'll get us uh, through a few more milestones. 
And it did get us through a few more milestones. We kept running into problems and it turned out the sort of mesh network we built where you don't have intermediate nodes, everything just connects to the endpoint it's looking for. It turns out that is a tractable problem. And there actually are tools that have been built, WebRTC and all the machinery there that let us follow it through through to today. And so we ended up building a thing that we thought wouldn't really work, that everyone else who has any experience with the field wouldn't think would work. And so accidentally created something a little bit new. There, in, you know, in retrospect, when we looked around afterwards, after we'd built it, we found there were other things that had the hallmarks of the same sort of design. We just weren't aware of them beforehand. So we, we ended up sort of discovering this for ourselves. I, I don't want to claim we went out and invented something radically different, but we did have to go through the process of finding it for ourselves. And that process uh, was entirely driven by what could we skip so that we can get something out in the next couple of weeks? Let's let's really simplify this and then add things later and get it in the hands of a customer so they can use it. And so that whole experience looks nothing like software development at a big company. You don't say, what could we rush out in two weeks to get a customer using when you work at Apple? Definitely not a way they think. It was vital to building our company, and I think it is vital to smaller companies being successful. And so I, I think about it a lot. Rapid prototyping is the term from the more physical industries uh, for the same task. I think it's a really good term in software too. I, I love the question that you asked, what could we skip to get something out and get into customers' hands? Um, I think that's a really powerful assumption check or a gut check for folks as they're going through that. There are some things that you had, you had to unlearn, one of them being thinking in quarters. Unlearning a time structure is a really interesting thing. And I was wondering if like there were other paradigms about product building that maybe also had to change as you're going through it. I know one of the things we had talked about in the past was sort of this assumption that you can define all the requirements for a product on the front end. In this process of accidentally discovering the product, how did that sort of change that assumption or perspective there? Yeah, there's this industry process of product management writes a PRD, product requirements document, and then uh, engineering thinks about it and writes a design doc, uh, and then engineering goes and implements the design after it's all been approved, and then you ship it to a customer, and then revenue happens at some point. That process is always idealized, sort of in the same way that the scientific method is a sort of an idealized process that doesn't actually reflect what scientists do. And part of what's going on there is you have a design that looks wonderful, you start building it about three hours into building it, you discover the design won't work because you completely forgot this really important thing that becomes obvious as soon as you start trying to write some code. And so there's a, there are these feedback mechanisms all through the process. There's feedback from engineering trying to build it. There's feedback from customers when they start to see it. And product managers work hard on customer feedback. They use mocks and other techniques of talking through the product customers to try and find those things early. But there's nothing quite like actually holding the object, trying to use it to get the experience to see whether it's going to work or not. These long cycles mean you have longer until you get feedback from both the process of making it and from the process of trying to use it. And those long feedback cycles slow down your development and make some sorts of development impossible. Because if it takes you a thousand feedback cycles to get to a result and your feedback loop is longer than the lifespan of the particular product market fit you found, then you'll never get there. It's a a choice of risks that you're choosing to take on when you have these sort of long cycles. You're saying, I want to do a lot of upfront work so I don't waste time. And in the process, you're deciding to take on the risk that uh, I'm going to do a lot of upfront work, which means I may not learn soon enough to actually find the right product. I don't want to sort of try and put things into a hierarchy of better or worse processes. I I think of these things in terms of trade-offs with the various risks you want to take on as a business. 
Yeah, I think distinguishing the risk is really is really interesting. Is that even if you are optimizing the plan up front, it's less of a choice of right or wrong, but more of a what's the risk that you want to take. I think that's really that's really interesting. And I think also in the context of like sharing your story with Tailscale, it's really interesting to see how fast that feedback loop was and how that then led to the the result of finding something that customers actually needed or wanted or was able to get really clear clarity over the the product. If you were to, you know, frame this in the, the world of like advice for teams or individuals to start to develop their instincts around prototyping and introducing more of this sort of faster experimentation or rapid prototyping, what would you recommend? What would I recommend? Well, it's very hard to make a generalized recommendation because I see it as a set of trade-offs. Yeah. So, for example, a million years ago when I first joined Google, I remember they instituted a, a rule that any new product has to launch with support for their top 40-something languages, which was, a, I think, a very sensible rule for an organization like Google when they're adding a new product lineup to you know, something that sits next to Google Docs, and Google Sheets, something that goes there. You know, when most of their customers are outside the Americas, using other languages, it makes plenty of sense to launch with many languages. If you're a pre-seed startup in the Bay Area and you're trying to ship something to your first few customers and you ship with 40-something languages, then you've made a mistake. But it's not necessarily true that a large company has made that mistake. And so understanding exactly what it is you're trying to do, who you're trying to reach, what your sort of product looks like, what your market looks like, or at least take solid guesses at these things and then try to minimize Everything you do, given those guesses, I think is key. So for startups, I think if you're thinking beyond weeks, especially very early stage startups, this is, then I think you might be in trouble, at least in software. If you do things in hardware, you have you have longer lead times and you have to accept slower iteration cycles. Even there, the hardware startups vary dramatically in their iteration cycles. For larger companies with more total requirements, I think the big question is, can you construct environments where you can experiment without all of these requirements? So maybe you're a big tech company and you're going to try a new product. You're not really sure if the market exists. Maybe you don't do a big fancy launch next to all of your other products with a fancy name on it. Maybe you run it as an experiment with a, a different sub-organization's name on it. You don't market it widely. You, you keep it to a smaller group of people. You ship with fewer languages. You, you only ship with one. So you don't need to go through and think about internationalization all the way through your product. It saves you a bit of work. That sort of scope of the project, I think, is the most important thing to understand. And can you can you change the scope? Can you shrink it so that you can learn faster is the big question. I love that idea of shrinking the scope and constructing those environments. I want to talk about the startup phase and case study. So let's say like seed, pre-seed, or, or early stage startup that maybe has committed the fallacy of thinking in quarters or longer term in this case, and maybe want to shift their culture more towards a a rapid prototyping. They want to accelerate their iteration cycles and things like that. If your culture is not built around that rapid prototyping, what could be done to shift that or to help shift that culture to operate more aligned with that? Yeah, that is an important question because I think the large software houses have a huge impact on our industry. And so just like I had to unlearn a lot of things when I, I left Google, I think many people starting startups have things to unlearn or early employees at startups come from big companies are used to you know, thinking in quarters. It's very common. And how can you adjust? I think, I think it's really tricky. Uh, one thing you can do is you can put arbitrary limits on yourself. Poets put arbitrary limits on themselves. It, uh, it helps a lot. You know, make it rhyme. 
I think there's a reason some of the best poetry rhymes. Like it doesn't seem fundamentally necessary. There are great poems that don't. But give yourself some limits, and you can you can see what you can construct in them. And so you could say like, okay, let's build something this week. Let's start with a blank sheet of paper. And let's think about who our customer is. We have several customers. Let's just pick a couple of them and let's say, pick them arbitrarily and then say, let's build something for them and we'll have it ready by Friday. And now you have a limit. In that space, what can you do? And the answer is going to be not very much. In fact, if you're not used to it, and I have been not used to it and given it a try, uh, you'll spend the first few days staring at a wall thinking, well, there's not really much I can do and maybe get something done in the last few hours. And uh, I think that's fine. You know, uh, I think it's, it's, uh, it's a good way to think about things. And you can just keep asking yourself, what don't we need? Because we're talking about engineering, there's a parallel in the everyday work of engineering, which is this saying, you ain't going to need it, which gets turned into a, an, I hope, an unpronounceable acronym, uh, <laughs> which uh, is a, a very much this idea that even in a well-scoped project of any duration, when you're setting out to solve a particular technical task, it's very easy to throw requirements onto it that you're probably not going to actually ever hit. You try and design it for a certain scale that it's never going to reach. You, know, you fall into this accidental trap of building solutions to problems that aren't there. You ain't going to need it is this maxim to try and help people find the accidental requirements they're placing on their own work and get rid of them. That lets you then say, well, what can I do that's simpler? Uh, and I think we can take that sort of concept that we see in sort of everyday programming and apply it at this uh, higher level strategic thinking for a company of what is my product? What is my market? What features do I need to ship? How long do I need to ship them in? Just to give a little bit more color on that, I think there are examples of setting yourself up for success in this space. So I don't get to play many computer games anymore because uh, the five-year-old takes all my time. But uh, I understand that the Steam platform for computer games has really pushed this early access process where you can release a game and say, oh, it's not ready yet, but people can play it anyway. Part of pushing this is building this feedback cycle where people who play this game that they know is not ready yet provide feedback to the developers who then adjust the game as they go. They've created this environment where they get faster feedback on the thing that they're building. And uh, I, I really like that. I think the principle is really good. That's a great example. You, you shared some really good tips about you know putting arbitrary limits on yourself to see what you can construct. And then you talked about you know identifying some of the constraints that the process of identifying some of the different constraints. I was wondering if you had any other tips for how to help somebody get to a prototype in, in just a few days. So if somebody who is maybe kind of stuck in a, in a longer time cycle, are there other ways that you might be able to help somebody, any of those other types of frameworks or tools that people can introduce to help them get to that faster prototype? One thing that really has struck me recently is we have a lot of industry best practices that all suffer from sort of a cold start problem. The, it requires a lot of knowledge to know how to go into this thing. And it requires sort of a, a lot of initial groundwork before anything actually happens. And so it's sort of an activation energy problem. And these best practices, are they best practices? Uh, it's a very different question. It's hard to tell because they change over time. I've watched many best practices come and go, and some of them stick around and some of them don't. So it's always a bit mysterious. But I contrast those with how you teach a brand new program at a program. They're very different experiences. And I can't help but think that when you're trying to ship something in days rather than weeks or months, you program more like someone who's never programmed before. It looks just like those first tutorials where you open up, these days you would open up REPL it and you'd use Python, you'd write a 10-line little program that you know, responds to something. You'd do a little JavaScript or you'd write a tiny little web server that you'd ship on a single VM. You would skip a, you skip a lot of industry best practices in this. You, there's no CDN. It doesn't scale. There's no front-end server. It doesn't scale out to you know, handle very large numbers of requests. Maybe you don't uh, use Terraform to 
correctly configure your cloud environment with elastic load balancers and all of these things. Maybe you just find the cheapest hosting provider you can and you start a VM and your VM's an Ubuntu machine because you know Ubuntu. Uh, and then you run your Python program with whatever the default Python install is and you run it in a screen session because you happen to know how screen works. That can ship a product and you broke a thousand rules to do it or a, th a thousand industry best practices. And the process of doing that looks a lot like how you teach someone programming 101. Thinking about programming from the very beginning, which is, is hard, you know, we've been doing this for many years, it's hard to think like, how do you how do you approach it from the start? When you do try to teach someone programming, you, you reach for the fastest tool that gets you from A to B that so you can explain to someone quickly. And those tools just happen to be the perfect thing for writing code quickly. And so I, I think the answer is sort of in plain sight. We just do what we would have done the first time we tried to write the program. The simplicity, find the fastest tool to get you from A to B and apply that to you building something faster and getting to rapid iterations faster. Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. I've been making some assumptions with these questions around, you know, mm -hmm. probably a smaller team operating in a startup. So you probably have less collaborator constraints that you're working with. There's just less people inputting into this. Um, now I'm wondering, as say, you know, the people that you're working with become more mature, like so you have design partners, product partners, all sort of focusing in on, on building something. So with this goal to iterate more rapidly or more quickly, what is it like, how do you think about working with design and product within this context of, of rapid prototyping? I think everyone can speed up the process and everyone can slow down the process. And it's about working together to try and speed up the process. Any one person working on a product from any role can find something that we could skip and skip it. And any one person can add new requirements. And so uh, I think there's this fundamental, you have to achieve consensus on speed being the goal. And I think that is very difficult. I am not sure I've ever fully achieved that. I think it's sort of an ongoing, for me, it's an ongoing process. I I'd love to figure out a, how to make it everyone's first thought of like, what is the quickest way to ship this solution to this? I don't think there's fundamentally any difference between a product manager, a product designer, or an engineer when it comes to, is this process going to be faster or slower? The one big difference is as a team grows, everything just becomes more complicated. Your total number of ideas grows, your total understanding grows, your desire to solve all of the problems you see, everyone has that desire, but you see more problems when you're a big team. And so there is this natural instinct in larger teams to, to head towards, let's pile it all into the release and get it right the first time. And let's take our time and, and uh, make it perfect. I, I, suppose, I suppose all of this is a very long-winded way of saying that old phrase, the perfect is the enemy of the good. I don't have the answer to how do you solve this in a general case with a larger team. To some extent, a larger team is actually several smaller teams working on independent things. And anytime you can achieve that, you're in a really good place with a larger team. I think you can you can build culture around this. You can talk about it a lot. You can you can help people learn the skill of working out what you don't need. It's very much a skill we can develop. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you a little bit more about the achieving consensus part because that seemed like such an unlock. 
when you're working with all these different partners, achieving consensus that speed is the goal or this rapid iteration is the goal is like first do that, then everybody can find something to skip. I know you said there that maybe it's been an imperfect process on, on your side and that's something that everybody is aspiring towards in different ways. I was wondering if you had maybe an example or a situation in which you were in that conversation with design and product counterparts and the trade-offs that you were navigating between the three of y'all and what that conversation was like and what were some of the trade-offs that you weighed sort of with this goal of, of rapid prototyping? I have plenty of examples of where bringing one more person into the conversation made us realize the critical error we were about to make. Oh, let's dive uh, into that. that. That sounds great. <laughs> well, well these, these these are this is the classic reason why larger groups slow down launching things, but it's also the vital part of shipping high quality software. And so this is this is the fundamental tension of doing things quickly. It's very easy to find yourself in the dichotomy of well, we're working quickly or we're working well. And I, I don't fundamentally like shipping low-quality software. I like shipping high-quality software. So that is the constant tension we all face. I, I remember one one thing we'd been working to for a long time with Tailscale was turning on our DNS system by default because we shipped DNS very quickly as a prototype and then cleaned it up over the next couple of months into a really great shape. One, one engineer in particular spent a very long time studying every operating system's deficiencies and building large, complex charts, and then designing the product that threaded the needle between all of their deficiencies, which is one of the things we find ourselves doing a lot when working with networking software across lots of platforms, is we're, we're looking for what, what we can ship that's consistent across a whole series of inconsistent platforms. And we had this DNS product, so it's called Magic DNS. It's a feature in Tailscale. And we turned it on internally, and it was in a reliable enough state that we were using it. And then we just sort of left it for a year which was in retrospect, and in, in fact, even along the way, but clearly in retrospect, uh, an unfortunate decision because internally we were experiencing Tailscale through the lens of this DNS system. So this, this is nice because when you start adding machines to your network, now they all have names associated with them. You don't, you don't have to worry about IP addresses anymore. You stop thinking about them. But it wasn't on by default, and we're not very good at telling people about a lot of Tailscale's features. And so unless you went into the admin panel and clicked on settings and then clicked on the DNS panel and found the switch and then went and looked in the documentation to learn what the switch does, uh, you would never know that you could give up on IP addresses and use names automatically and not even have to think about it. Most of our users weren't. They, they didn't have it on. And so our experience of the product and the user's experience of the product were radically different, uh, which is unfortunate, especially because our experience was significantly better uh, just because we knew where the switch was. And so eventually we realized this and we said, okay, let's figure out why we haven't turned this on by default. And then we made a list of bugs and we started working through them. And there was like one or two serious bugs and then like three or four really small ones. And we were like, okay, that's it. We're done. Uh, now we can turn it on by default and declare the feature complete. And then our product manager came in and said, well, it's still got this word beta in all the domain names. You're going to get rid of that? And we're like, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, <laughs> we should have, should have seen that before. Yeah. Anyway, so... So that turned out to be surprisingly difficult for a variety of reasons, because we didn't want to break any of the people who were still using the fully qualified names with beta in them. So we had to build support for handling the existing names with beta in them and then support for the new names we were adding. And then we had to also make it so new users didn't get the old beta names to confuse them so that only existing accounts had to deal with the duality of it all. That ended up being one of the most significant parts of getting the product launched. Realized you know, half an hour before we pressed the button to turn it on because wow. uh, one more person was thinking about it. That's the software quality side of adding more people to a team. Uh, and that's great. It's And it's vital uh, to ship good quality software. And you know, good quality software is vital. I don't want to give the impression that you can ship things full of bugs. The only reason uh, small startups get to ship things full of bugs is they have very few customers and those customers aren't running into the bugs. 
Once you have lots of customers, every bug is a lost customer. It's really important as, as you grow to ship high-quality software. And so that's that's the complete inverse of what I, uh, I'm trying to achieve. That's about slowing projects down to ship high-quality code. And so balancing out that against rapid iteration is really hard. It's really, it's much easier with new features. New features can ship with bugs, but when you're trying to take something and make it generally available, turn it on by default for a large user base, that's where everything falls apart. You end up back in sort of more traditional, longer cycles. And for good reason, you're, 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 it's a very different risk function. Such a great, that's such a great story. I mean, even just even thinking about a feature release, like if you're an engineering leader and you're helping organize the team around that, like thinking about incorporating marketing partners or people that are responsible for communicating the mm-hmm. impact of those features to end users, like the the DNS switch, like thinking that about that what that launch looks like from the beginning, I think it's interesting. But then also, like you said, the slowing down and identifying some of those critical bugs to account for on the front end is really interesting. I was wondering if there were any areas where you feel large companies typically get aspiring to rapid prototyping wrong. I was wondering if you had any any stories or, or insights there where some of these larger companies typically can go wrong in, in trying to rapidly prototype. I think there are a few ways of thinking about that. So it's not exactly rapid prototyping, but one related idea is rapidly shipping a product. Among larger companies, there's always some process for unshipping a product for unlaunching something, which companies decide to do for a variety of reasons. There's a question of how much are you unlaunching? I think at a certain size, you have to accept it's a thing that will happen. It's a thing that happens because products don't exist in a static environment. Products are used by customers. And this is the thing that venture capitalists like to talk about product market fit. It's a two-dimensional optimization problem of you can change your product and then you can change your market and find the two that fit. And you can leave your product alone over years and your market can shift out from under you and it doesn't make any sense anymore. But the market is so different, there's no easy way to change the product. So you have to get rid of it. You have to accept that things get discontinued. The Apple Newton got discontinued. Though the iPhone showed up eventually, sort of in the same space. Just needed a couple decades more technology. But there are definitely companies that kill features regularly, all the time, and to the point where it hurts user trust. And I I would claim that that is an example of a larger company trying to move faster in a way where... Uh, it ends up hurting everything uh, because they ship a thing that they then decide isn't right. In that process, their users stop trusting their brand. Uh, it does damage to some long-standing element, which is usually their brand. And that, I think, is uh, deeply unfortunate. I think that is sort of a specific case of the more general problem of when you rapidly ship something in an environment where you are guaranteed to get a lot of users, which is a, th- is a state big companies are in. If Microsoft ships something tomorrow and add it to Windows, it'll have millions of users the next day or maybe the next week because Windows brings you an enormous audience. And so they're, they're guaranteed success that a startup would dream of right out the gate. And that brings the risk that if you get the product entirely wrong the first time, if you if you take all the shortcuts a startup would take for the 10 users they're going to have at the end of the week, you're going to hurt a lot of people. And so bigger companies have to move slower. They have to move slower because they have all of these other constraints on them. We've talked sort of about large companies and small companies. And I know you had some some interesting examples of the value of rapid iteration in some of these different contexts. And so I was wondering if we could talk talk about some of those examples and some maybe of the lessons or the insights that stood out to you when, when looking at some of those examples of rapid prototyping. There are a lot of ways of looking at it, uh, especially... Especially if you take it through the lens of uh, well, relative rapid speed. So you, you can talk about things that take months against things that take decades. And you can talk about rapid iteration in public against sort of private development with slow, slow public iteration. Uh, and then, then lots of examples appear. So a really surprising one I heard the other day. So I, I like 
urban environments. I'm a city person and, and I like all the things that come with cities. I like the subway. And uh, now I live in the Bay Area and so I use BART a lot to get around and I much prefer it to cars. Cars are wonderful machines. I really enjoy them, but I don't really like car culture of living out in the suburbs. I like being able to walk places and being able to use a train to get other places. And I was shocked to discover that EVs compare favorably energy-wise to BART, which was actually unbelievable to me. I I kept digging, and I I think the numbers are right, that if you get two or three people into a Tesla Model 3, energy-wise, you're doing better than you are riding BART in the Bay Area. Interesting. Yeah, which from a physics perspective makes no sense at all, because trains have several fundamental physical advantages. People are denser in the train. You should have less total infrastructure per person that you're moving. They use metal wheels on metal rails, which have less rolling friction. They should be much more efficient there. And of course, these electric trains have the energy piped into them through third rail or overhead wires, so they don't have to carry a large battery system around with with all their energy in them. So they should absolutely win from a physics perspective, but they're not. And if I tried to guess why, you know, if you you tried to find the root cause, you'd, you'd come up with something like, well, the trains are too heavy, or they stop too often and don't use regenerative braking. And this is sort of doing an engineering root cause. But if you do a sort of process root cause, the problem is, well, when was BART designed? In the 70s, like rolled out in the 80s? Mm-hmm. And how many times has it been redesigned since then? I know they just got some new cars, so I guess that's once. So that's what, their iteration time is once a decade, once every 15 years or so between train designs? What does a modern car company do? It's about six months between a car iteration, and they get immediate customer feedback on the on the vehicles they ship. They ship constant feedback between them. Car companies end up building these enormous R&D machines, investing vast sums of money in making their cars better and turning that iteration cycle. Public transit infrastructure doesn't get to do any of that. The result is even though they have all the advantages, they, they end up behind. Uh, and I think that's, you know, I mean, again, as a train person, it is deeply unfortunate. It makes me, it makes me sad. But uh, I, I can see that economically it's, it's, the system is not set up to let train manufacturers iterate. And I don't actually even know how to solve that problem. It's a really complex structural problem. That's me going way off into the weeds of the physical realm rather than software. Uh, To bring it back to software, the most striking thing that's happened recently is OpenAI's chatbot that they released, which has really made waves. It's really lit a fire under Silicon Valley in a sense. And I totally understand why. When When I first opened it up, when it was first released, it was astonishing. It was like talking to an inspired and slightly deranged eight year old. It was glorious. It was like a poet. You could ask it absurd questions and it would, you know, what is beauty? And it would come up with these absurd answers. I mean, it would start out very reasonable and then you'd, you'd start to drill down and it would become absurd. Uh, and it would start to become dangerous too. You could start asking it questions about medical diagnoses and it would, with great authority, tell you the wrong answer. You, you could totally see how how this thing, you know, is both the poet you want to meet at a bar one day and someone who could do real harm in the world. What a risk they took releasing that thing. What a brand risk they took. And you could see it, right? The, the uh, Microsoft released something similar and a transcript with it ended up on the front page of the New York Times because it was so shocking, apparently. It would be shocking if uh, uh, if you met a person like that in real life. But if you went and put ChatGDP into the body of a five-year-old and it ran around saying the things it did, uh, it would just be funny. You'd really enjoy its company. Uh, so it was a wonderful machine. And unfortunately, you know, they're, they're busy trying to make it less like that absurd thing it was. Uh, and now it just says, I'm sorry every time I ask it a question, uh, which is very sensible. And that's exactly the direction you should go in terms of building a product. But I can't help but wonder... You know, chat GDP, a lot of the fundamental research in transformers and attention and all these large language models, this has been coming out of large software houses, Meta, Google, all these people do a lot of research. I find it hard to believe that there aren't research teams at Google and Meta that had exactly the same sort of chatbot hanging around on their network as a demo that they shared with 15 or 20 people. 
uh, and didn't even dare to share wider within the company because they didn't want to see the transcript on the front page of the New York Times. It was there, and they knew it. And I'm sure they're extremely frustrated that OpenAI uh, now has all of the cred because they were able to take the risk. But because they were a smaller organization and they don't have these big brands they need to defend shipping other products, they don't have 2 billion users of a search engine, billions of users of a social network, that they could say, let's just publish it. And if there's some if there's some blowback, that's fine. Then they got to play around with it in public. And as people posted terrible things, their chatbot said, they, they went and added a fix so that it said, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to say that. And uh, it got better. And they got to have that iteration in public, and now they are the name in AI, and everyone wants to integrate with them. I assume the other big software companies have integration offerings. I can't imagine anyone's bothering trying to use them, uh, even though I'm sure they have all of this technology under the hood. They Their brand was too important to risk with this sort of public iteration. And I think that's correct for them and also tragic. I'm sure someone had this machine years ago, and we were just never allowed to see it. The correctness and the tragedy, you summed that up so powerfully. I wanted to ask you one more follow-up question about sort of the integrations phenomenon that OpenAI has opened up with, you know, I think you said it, it sparked, it lit a fire within Silicon Valley. And now you said everybody wants to integrate with it. And it's also sort of sparked this whole new renaissance of products and integrations that people are incorporating into their product really quickly and really publicly. I was wondering if you had any any observations there in terms of people's willingness to adopt and integrate with it as a new feature. There's an old technology saying about how uh, we always overestimate what we can do in a year and we underestimate what we can do in 10 years. And my guess is the very first immediate integrations with the new chatbots won't go particularly well. They'll seem awkward and a little forced and maybe useful. But I think the process of trying it will learn something. The models will be refined over the next couple of years and then it will become a completely normal way of doing everything. I certainly wish Hey Siri, it had the sort of incredible modeling machinery of ChatGDP behind it uh, and could you know have such a fun conversation with me the way it does. I also understand why they won't ship it because, again, it's actively dangerous. I suspect a lot of those dangers, and, you know, the, the initial solution is basically to cut it off periodically, right? Uh, every time you ask a question, the whole, oh, I, I can't really answer that, you know, I'm not really designed for that, that's clearly the very hard, fast hack that's been done on the model. Uh, I would not be surprised if these models turn out to be trainable just the way humans are, that it can start to think about reputation, it can start to think about confidence and the, you know, the relative importance of giving correct answers, the, the value of saying, I don't know, and of building trust with people. Once you can have a conversation with something, I don't see why these machines can't learn all of that. Uh, mm-hmm. And as they do, the integrations will all seem sort of obvious. I occasionally have to call an airline to figure something out because their website doesn't work. And they have a wonderful new service where you can use text messages instead, uh, which is great because I don't have to listen to the hold music. And I can't imagine that not being replaced by one of these chatbots at some point down the line. I, I don't see how they how it can be anything other than a whole new way of interacting with our computers. Uh, and I think everyone will expect something in a year and they won't get it. Uh, and then in five years, it'll be normal and everyone will be surprised. I've been blown away by just the way that folks have been incorporating into their products. Like we have, we have some friends in a seed company, org space. They help you play around with different org structures, model different org structures, but then also they're doing some things around like removing the toil of communicating those updates mm-hmm. to folks. So they integrated a, a chat G- GPT-3 interface to help you draft those messages. Um, they've also been mm-hmm. having some fun with kind of like iterating on voices that kind of mock some uh-huh. of the horrible sort of restructure 
emails that have gone out. Uh, but the other one that just came out like this week was HubSpot with Dharmesh Shah, their CTO, said he spent a couple almost like all-nighters putting together this like chatbot CRM sort of interface where you could ask it questions and it helps you understand your your customers within your your CRM and stuff. And I was like, oh, like all of those integrations are so interesting and exciting and to have them out there be in people's hands to be able to gain insights and then improve on the technology there. I think you said five years from now, it's going to be, it's going to be wild. Yeah, I think building search into existing products is is a definitely a place to look because search is very difficult to get off the ground as a product feature, which is why most products don't do it very well. These offer a real opportunity there. Oh, I was just say like speaking of like the search feature, I've just seen creators use it. Interesting, like so like Lenny Rachinsky, he does like the product podcast. Um, he's got a big following. He had a fan make a Chat GPT three Lenny, so you could ask him questions mm-hmm. and then they'll give you a bunch of like basically pull from his database of content to give you product insights mm-hmm. and recommendations and strategy. And I was like, that's going to be probably more prevalent thing within the people. Yeah, absolutely. Anywhere where there's a lot of locked up knowledge inside a system, they they will help unlock. Getting back to the original topic of sort of iterating in public, rapid iteration, I think the wonderful thing here is that we uh, have been generally as an industry under-investing in where this technology can go. And, you know, I have been chatting with AI people for many years, and it's been obvious to them where everything can go. And there's been thousands of engineers thinking about this problem. Uh, and now there are tens or hundreds of thousands of engineers thinking about this problem. Uh, and I think that is the right number. It's a really interesting new space, and it's going to take a very long time for us to figure out the product side of this. Uh, and it's going to be a, a huge effort. And if all of the really interesting chatbot functionality had stayed locked up inside the heavy research teams because product was dangerous and it looked really bad for their brand, then we as an industry would be uh, would be in worse shape. So I'm, I'm happy there was a startup-like organization in the space who could give us all something and light that fire. It's a few years before it becomes a norm, but uh, there's, there's definitely something there. Just the way that uh, an open source database like SQLite has a full text search engine in it now, uh, I don't see why we wouldn't have similar sort of chat interfaces as sort of fundamental building blocks of new products. Absolutely. I think it's a, a powerful way to, to wrap up that part of the conversation. David, I have three rapid fire questions for you to, to right. close us off. What are you reading or listening to right now? I just read a, a fun book called Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow, uh, yeah. which is a fun novel. I just I wrapped that book up a couple weeks ago too. It was phenomenal. I loved it. It like yeah, makes me wish I was in the video game industry. I deeply admire people who build video games. I don't think I would do a very good job of it myself, but uh, it's, uh, I do have a lot of admiration for them. That's how I feel about book authors. I uh, deeply <laughs> yeah. admire them. I don't know if I could ever do something like that. So I love that. Second question: What's a tool or methodology that's had a big impact on you? I know we just spent a ton of time talking about rapid prototyping and things like that. Is there another one that comes to mind? Yeah, uh, the Go programming language. You know, I, I find myself constantly relearning programming languages, and its whole premise is to avoid sort of the heavy start problem of you have a lot to learn before you can get anything done. Uh, I can get stuff done and go very quickly, and yet I can also scale it up to building complex pieces of software like Tailscale, and uh, that's great. That's powerful. I love it. Last question, David. Is there a quote or a mantra that you live by or a quote that's been resonating with you right now? Probably the one I mentioned earlier about the perfect being the enemy of the good. I don't live by it. I don't think I live by any quote, but uh, I, I have been appreciating it a lot recently. I keep finding it places. I love it. David, thank you for helping us explore the dynamics, the dilemmas, uh, and all of these different interesting stories of rapid prototyping and the trade-offs and, and helping us better navigate this. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun. 
If you enjoyed the episode, make sure that you click subscribe if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or follow if you're listening on Spotify. And if you love the show, we also have a ton of other ways to stay involved with the engineering leadership community, to stay up to date and learn more about all of our upcoming events, our peer groups, and other programs that are going on. Head to sfelc.com. That's sfelc.com. See you next time on the Engineering Leadership 